I do count it a great privilege to stand before the young people at camp to preach the Word of God. I always enjoy these services, and we're looking to the Lord to bless His Word tonight to all of our hearts. I'd like you to turn in your Bible again to John chapter 4. Let us just read the one verse. John chapter 4, verse 24. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the woman of Samaria. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's bow together briefly for prayer and ask the help of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy presence with us in these meetings. We rejoice in thy word as one that findeth great spoil. We give thee praise for every message that has gone forth already, for all the devotions that have taken place in the cabins, the discussions that have ensued the going forth of thy precious word in various ways this week. And again, Lord, we are before thee tonight in our time of need, thanking thee that we can come to a throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And I pray, Lord, that thou wilt come to us this night in a special way, that thou wilt be our helper that thou will give help in the hearing of the word, that thou will give aid in the preaching of the word. We ask, Lord, as has often been prayed by preachers, we would pray tonight, Lord, hide man completely behind the cross of Christ. Let the Lord Jesus himself be seen, and may his name be glorified in all that is said. Do a work of grace in hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In our brother's prayer tonight, he quoted the first line of my sermon. The Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is man's chief end, or what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Word of God teaches us that the church of Jesus Christ exists for this purpose, to bring glory to God. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21 speaks to this. There the apostle says, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Inevitably then, we must think of how this can be done. How do God's people, how can God's people bring glory to the Lord? Surely it must be by means of true worship. Both inside and outside the house of God and the public gatherings of the saints and in their daily living in this world. Now we live in a day when we hear a lot about worship. Sermons are preached on the topic, books have been written on the subject, and in Christian circles, people talk about it. 
Some churches, and I think especially so in relatively recent times, have created a special position called the worship leader. While musical groups and bands are given a prominent place in leading the so-called worship. It's not uncommon to see church notice boards advertising worship services under the headings of traditional and contemporary, or as in the case of a local church near where I live, they have the historical service and the horizon service, and uh, it's the same thing. Those old fogies who like the old ways, well, they can have that first service, and those who are more hip and trendy and upbeat, they can have the horizon service, looking, as it were, to the future. Now, the worship of the church has become more and more the source of conflict in congregations. We've all heard of the worship wars taking place in certain churches, and it is an area of church life that is definitely fraught with controversy. A very common idea that you young people may have heard about is that the church has to be culturally relevant. It has to be innovative in its worship and that it must engage with people, especially the young people, in a language that they can identify with. Really, what this is tantamount to saying is we've got to give people what they want rather than what they need, rather than what God has prescribed in his word. And it is my concern that we have a biblical view of any matter, and especially the topic of worship. There was a great English preacher called G. Campbell Morgan, and he once gave a very good definition of worship when he said, Quote, what is worship? The essential and simple meaning of the word, and therefore the fundamental thought, is that of prostration, of bowing down. Worship suggests that attitude which recognizes the throne. It is a word full of force, which constrains us and compels us to the attitude of reverence. Unquote. It has been said by another when identifying the core problem in today's church with regard to public worship, worship as entertainment prevails over worship as service rendered to God. In our Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 1, section 6, we read the following. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be so ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. But it goes on to say this very significantly. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. 
and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. And that is what is often referred to as the regulative principle of worship. I know there's some controversy even as to what that looks like. But the fact of the matter is, the simple truth is that God has prescribed the way in which he is to be worshipped. It's not up to you and to me to decide what God will or will not be pleased with when it comes to worship. Now here in John chapter 4, the Lord's having a conversation with a woman at the well in Samaria. And the subject of worship comes up. It's not brought up by the Lord, it's brought up by this woman. When she says to the Savior in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She was right away caught up with the place and the circumstances of the worship. And the Lord then engaged her in the subject of true worship and of true worshipers. And I think the key statement in that exchange is that which we've read in verse 24. But it obviously follows on from verse 23, where the Lord says this, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. And then he said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice the reference there in, 20, in verse 23 to true worshipers who worship in truth. This is not a very long statement, but it's very full of meaning. And it brings before us tonight a subject which is broad and wide in its scope. And that is the subject of true worship. What is it? In our day, there are so many who really don't understand what true worship is, nor do they practice true biblical worship, especially when it comes to the services, the public services of the church. And we do need to examine this topic in the light of what the Scripture says. You see, the Bible is a handbook on everything, and the Bible is certainly a handbook on this topic. It's a handbook on worship. And it tells us, it tells you, and it tells me what true worship really is. And the one thing that I see here above everything else is paramount in what our Lord Jesus says. And it's where we must begin when we talk about true worship. And that is with a person. The person of true worship. God. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I want us to think about the person of true worship. And in the first place in the scripture, we discover that God demands true worship. He demands it. 
How often do we read the words in the Bible, thou shalt and thou shalt not? You look at the first two commandments of the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20, and how does the Lord begin? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That doesn't mean that you're, you're allowed to have other gods as long as they come second or third to the Lord. That's not what it means. It says, thou shalt have no other gods before my face. I will not countenance, I will not brook any rivals. God alone is to be worshipped. But then he tells us how he is to be worshipped. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. I shall not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God is jealous for his own name. He's jealous for his worship. Without expanding these words, we're taught right on the surface of the text that God and only God is to be worshipped by his creatures. This he demands. Again, if I might quote the Catechism, question 46 asks, what is required in the first commandment? And the answer, the first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly. So, God demands worship. But what is worship? Very simply, worship is to ascribe worth or value to something. True worship, then, is to ascribe to God his worth or as one old preacher called it, his worthship. God is to be worshipped for what he is worth. That's quite a thought, isn't it? God demands, therefore, that we worship him supremely, absolutely, and alone, above all and only. When the devil tempted our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the reposts of the Lord to him was this, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. There was the temptation in the mind of John the Beloved to worship an angel who appeared to him in Revelation chapter 19. And the angel said, when he fell at his feet to worship him, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. None other is to be worshipped but him. Again, if you'll forgive the reference to the confession, it says religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but of Christ alone. That's chapter 21, section 2. God has told us in his word that no worship is acceptable but that of the one true 
and living God. We are to worship him supremely. That's what he demands. We are to worship him furthermore sincerely. This is what our Lord Jesus said. Thou shalt worship him, or you must worship him in spirit and in truth. The very first prerequisite for true worship then is a true conversion to God. A saving experience of Christ in your heart by his grace. I know some of you young people, others of you I don't know. One thing I don't know is the state of any of your hearts. I can't see into your heart. The Lord knoweth them that are his. It could well be that there are some young people here and you're not the Lord's. You may be from a Christian home. You may obviously be from a good church. But you've never been regenerated. You've never been born of God. You've never known what it was to have this saving experience. Is it not a a wonderful thing to contemplate that in this very chapter where the Lord is speaking to a woman about worship, he's speaking to a woman who is not regenerate at this point. She's not saved. She's never known the peace of God in salvation. And the Lord deals with her on that matter. And as he speaks to her, it becomes obvious to her that he is the Messiah. And the truth dawns upon this woman's heart so that she goes and leaves her water pot and goes into the city and says to the men that are gathered there, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She's come to a saving knowledge of the Lord, and from that day on she begins to worship. You have never really begun to worship if you're not saved. That is a fact. You cannot worship in spirit when you do not have the spiritual experience of regeneration. That which the Lord spoke of in the previous chapter to another individual, a religious man called Nicodemus. When he said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, except he be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. You may have heard of the great evangelist George Whitfield. He preached some 18,000 sermons or so. Out of that number of 18,000 sermons, he's reckoned to have preached over 3,000 times on the subject of the new birth. You must be born again. And he was asked by a man one day, Mr. Whitfield, I hear you preaching this a lot. Why do you preach so much on you must be born again? Whitfield looked at him. He said, because, sir, you must be born again. Young person, you must, you must be born again. You cannot worship 
in spirit and in truth. Unless you have the spiritual experience of knowing Christ as your Savior, His righteousness being imputed to you and received by faith alone. In his book on worship, Robert Dickey wrote the following, It needs to be remembered that the true worship of the living God can only come as a result of the gracious work of God's Spirit in the salvation of the soul. Before a man can ever worship God biblically, he must first know this God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Spirit of God gives life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, the response of that new life will be the joyful and passionate worship of God. Worship is the outflow of regeneration. Young person, do you know what it is to worship God? I don't mean you sing the hymns. I don't mean you bow your head with everyone else. I don't mean necessarily even that you listen carefully to the sermon. But do you know what it is to have your heart ascend to God in praise and worship because you know I am his and he is mine? Notice again verse 23 of John 4. The true worshipers shall worship in spirit and in truth. Here is true spiritual worship. And I'm hammering away in this nail because I believe it's important and it's essential. Without salvation, it is an impossibility to really worship. God demands true worship. But secondly, God deserves true worship. Why does God deserve true worship? Because he is God. God deserves worship because he alone is God. There is none other God but he. But it is also because of the kind of God he is and because of what he has done. As our Bible puts it, there is none like unto the Lord come here to the camp and you experience a lot of things, but you just take a look around you at the camp, at these beautiful mountains, the endless mountains, and just go out in the early morning or even later at night toward dusk and just soak in the beauty of nature and realize God made all of this. As we sang in that hymn, you know it well, how great thou art. It speaks there of the creation. And there are some wonderful works that God has done in terms of creation. It's marvelous in our eyes. And we ought to respond to it like the hymn writer. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. It's the God of creation. But then we consider the mighty truth of his providence. The things that God does that cannot be explained away because he is active in this world. The Lord did not make everything and then just leave it. God is active in this world. He's a God who sends the rain and the sunshine and the wind and the snow. But he's the God of providence who works all things after the counsel of his own will, even in our lives. Nothing happens by chance. 
There's many a story that could be told of the wonderful providence of God, but one that I really like is of a famous preacher who was trying to escape from the enemies of the gospel who would have killed him. And he found his way into a large baker's oven. And they were searching everywhere and would no doubt have found him inside that oven were it not for the fact that just then as he entered the oven behind him, there was a big spider who began to spin her web over the entrance to that oven. And coming to that oven, the troops saw this beautifully constructed web and they thought, well, nobody's in there. They had not realized that this happened after the inhabitant of the oven had entered. What was that? Was that an accident? This was a man of God for whom God's people were praying that he would be preserved. And the God of providence arranged for that little creature to spin her web in order that she might preserve the Lord's servant. There was a, a man who founded a great exchange, a corn exchange in London. When he was a baby, he was cast out into the field and would have died. Were it not for the fact that someone was passing by and heard the, loud, the loud chirping of a grasshopper, went over to examine where this sound was coming from and found this little infant. That man grew up to be a successful businessman and above the corn exchange there in London, there is a large image of a grasshopper because he had been told the story of how his life had been preserved. The God of providence, and that must elicit the same response from us that he alone is worthy of all our praise. What great things he has wrought on our behalf and on behalf of his church everywhere. I know there are people in this room and you've seen the providence of God at work in your life. You can testify to these things. Nobody else understands. The world certainly doesn't. But you know that God has worked and he is worthy, therefore, of your worship and your praise. But then all of this, the wonders of creation, the wonders of providence actually pale into insignificance when we think of what great things he has wrought for us in the wonderful work of redemption. This is his greatest work. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art! How great thou art! In the light of Calvary, can we not say, worthy is the Lamb? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Certainly God deserves true worship. And young person, if you are a believer tonight, you should never be able to get over the fact, Jesus died for me. It's not just Christ died for us. That's true. 
It's not just that he gave himself for all of his people. That's true. But as the Apostle Paul put it, so every Christian can say he's the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Me. A wretched, vile, ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinner. Jesus died for me. Does he not deserve my worship? Something else. The Lord not only demands true worship and deserves true worship, but God desires true worship. Look at the words of Jesus here to the woman. He said in verse 23, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a rather amazing thought to me. That God actually desires worship from us. The Father seeketh such to worship him. As one preacher remarked, God is actually on the lookout for true worshipers. And the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the services of the tabernacle, the system of worship devised for the temple, they all show that God desires worship from his own people. He wants to be worshipped. He desires to be adored by his redeemed people. And would to God that we would desire the Lord's presence as much as he desires ours. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. The word there is the word for synagoguing, the assembling. And the word to forsake is the word for abandoning. The, the thought really there is of apostasy and people turning away from the worship of God for good. But nonetheless, there is that application that can be made, is there not, that we ought to desire, greatly desire, the worship of the Lord and the Lord's house. We shouldn't be going to God's house with a slow step, with any reluctance, looking out the window, oh, it's a bad day today, I think I'll stay home. Oh, we should desire the house of the Lord. Psalm 87 tells us in verse 2 that the Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. What does that mean? Well, the dwellings of Jacob is the places where they lived. And the Lord will meet with you in your own home. But the Lord loveth the gates of Zion. The Lord loves the place of public assembly. Robert Murray McShane whose church I used to love to visit when I lived in Scotland for 10 years. Every chance I got, I would go up there with people and show them the graveyard and his grave and the church. What a man of God he was. McShane used to talk about how that the Lord would be specially present at the seasons of communion. And he loved the Lord's day. Way back then in Scotland, in the 18, early 1840s, the railway system was going to start operating Sunday trains for the first time. 
And in the light of that, another Sabbath desecration as he saw it, McShane preached a sermon that was put into print, I love the Lord's Day. Do we love the Lord's Day? And by the way, it's not the Lord's morning. It's the Lord's Day. We have some Protestant papists around today who think that the Lord's Day finishes at 12 noon. And the rest of the day you can just do whatever you want and give to other things. What a sad, sad thing that is. If all other days of the week are literal 24-hour days, and they are, then so is the Sabbath. But the point is that the Lord desires to meet with me in his house. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. What a promise that is. Even for our public gatherings, if we draw near to the Lord, the Lord has promised to draw near to us. Is there ever a time when you could, you could be in your place in God's house? It's not that you're sick or providentially hindered, but you could be in the house of the Lord, but you're not. What does it say about your spiritual condition? What does it say about the desires of your heart? One of the saddest scriptures in the New Testament is where it speaks of Thomas. When the Lord appeared to his disciples... And he breathed on them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And he said, peace be unto you. But the scripture says, but Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. Are there times when the Lord has a blessing reserved for me on his day, but I'm not there to receive it? God desires true worship. He calls his people to prayer, yes, private, but yes, corporate. What does it say about our state when we have little or no desire to seek his face? There's something else here. God defines true worship. In the words of Christ, we have true worship defined. Verse 24, it's both spiritual and sincere. Now, in the scripture as a whole, worship is clearly explained what it is and the purpose of it. And worship, contrary to what some people might think, is not about you primarily. It's about God. Now, think about this. I do believe that's forgotten in this touchy-feely age. True worship is about bringing God what is due to his name. It is about what God gets from the worship. Honor, glory, praise worship. Is it not true that too often the emphasis is upon what you, the worshiper, will receive from a service or a church meeting? I've heard people say, I didn't get anything out of that service. Someone said that in the presence of one of our senior men back in Ulster, and that man answered him by saying, did they sing any of the hymns of the faith in the service? Well, yes. Did they pray? Well, well, yes. Did they read the scriptures in the service? Well, yes. And you got nothing out of it. The problem is with you, not with the church that you were attending. Too often the emphasis, I say, is upon what you, the worshiper, will receive from a service or from a church gathering. You've heard people say, oh, I was so blessed last night. 
And maybe you were. It's a common exclamation, and if it's genuine, that's a good thing. And, and I do not minimize at all the effect that a true sight of God will have upon the worshiper. And we'll come to that in a moment. There are examples replete in both Old and New Testaments of those that were blessed by the Lord's presence and worship. You can see how Ezra and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and John the Beloved were affected in the presence of God. But it does not change the fact, young people, that God is to be worshipped for his worth. And not because of what the worship might do for you, the worshiper. See, if we had our minds on the right thing and had the right perspective on worship, it would do away with the entertainment syndrome It would do away with false worship. You see, true worship is not man-centered. It is, to use a theological term, theocentric, centered upon God. He is to be the focus. He is to be its end. I always like what it says of Moses and the Israelites in Exodus 19 and verse 17. Listen to this. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. Is that why you go to church? Is that why you go to the meetings that you go to? To meet with God? Oh, yes, it did have a profound effect upon them. We, we find that in chapter 20 and verses 18 and, 18 and 19 where all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off and said to Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. The worship of God had an effect upon them, but the purpose, I tell you, was to meet with God. The Father seeketh such true worship is to be that in which the Lord is the focus. And true worship is the worship of God above all else with our focus on nothing else. It's true to say that it is only as the Lord occupies his rightful place in our hearts that true worship is possible. And this true worship then is defined as it is exemplified. And we haven't time to look at all this, but just study Isaiah chapter 6. And see what happened to the prophet when he got that vision of the Lord high and lifted up upon the throne. The effect that it had upon his own heart humbled him. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. John the Beloved in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 1, he fell at the Lord's feet as dead. These are true worshipers, both profoundly affected by a sight of God in worship. And as much as true worship is exemplified in the Bible, the same is true by way of contrast with false worship. Oh, the spurious worship that is abroad today. It is exposed and it is condemned by the word of God. I always say if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it sounds like a duck. It is a duck. It looks like the world, it sounds like the world. It is the world. That's many a church 
today. Yes, there's the false worship of apostasy and heterodoxy, unscriptural doctrines and practices, but there's also the unacceptable worship that may be orthodox in profession, but without heart and without scriptural foundation. May it not be true of us that we draw near with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. My time's gone, but I just want to mention this, that God delights in true worship. As he seeks the true worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth, he shows his delight in their worship by drawing near and blessing them. That's not the purpose of the worship, but it is the result of worship. The Lord will bless you. The Lord says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. And there's joy in finding the Lord in worship as we worship him in spirit and in truth. But let us remember this, true worship, and I've only scratched the surface on this tonight, true worship is not just an hourly exercise once a week, but it is a way of life. Everything I do as a Christian, privately and publicly, is in the realm of worship. Giving to God his worth. What a challenge there is in that. Let it be our purpose every day to ascribe to the Lord his worth, remembering that the Lord inhabiteth the praises of Israel. Whoso offereth praise, he said, glorifieth me. May God help us to glorify him, and may we enjoy his worship as we fit ourselves to the biblical prescription to worship in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Just as we're closing tonight with our heads bowed, I want to say to any of you young people who have perhaps been convicted by a message on some of these other nights or other occasions, and perhaps even tonight, you say, Pastor, I... I think that's me. I've never been saved. My heart's really not in the worship of God because I'm not regenerate. I've never been born again. Well, let me just say to you tonight, you can leave this meeting a new creature by the grace of God. Jesus said, come unto me. Not come to the church. Not even come to a minister, but come unto me. All ye that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you've never truly come to the Lord, come to him tonight. Give your whole self to him. Give your life over to him from this day on. Determine that you're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the word of God. Bless it to every heart. Lord, forgive us for that false worship. Not that we worship thee necessarily in a wrong way, but our hearts were not in it. How often, Lord, our hearts have not ascended unto thee with our hands. How often, Lord, we have been guilty of that which Jesus said the people of his day were guilty of. They drew near with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Forgive us, Lord, 
when our very souls have not been engaged in the worship of our God, when we come to the worship of the Lord with a half heart, Father, cleanse us from our sin. Fill us with thy spirit. Give us a delight in the ordinances. Give us a delight in the things of God. Oh, Father, we pray that the day will soon come when even the general population will beat a path to the houses of God where Christ is preached. For, Lord, we know that such happened in days of revival. We pray that thou wilt get to thyself glory by the garnering and gathering in of true worshipers. Hear our prayer. We offer it in Jesus' name and for God's glory. Amen.